Hello and welcome back to Seeker Plus, the show where we take one topic and really hyper-focus on it. I'm your host, Julian Huguet, and if you're anything like me, you're very online. You're constantly bouncing between YouTube and Twitter or TikTok or Twitch or any number of sites and apps, and heck, I wouldn't be surprised if you've already clicked on something else while this episode plays in the background. It's okay. It's why we made an audio-focused show. I'm not offended. But on a lot of these other sites, you may have noticed, as I have, that there seems to be a growing conversation about ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. You may know it better as ADD, although today the hyperactivity component is included in the name. Suddenly, though, it seems like people with the condition are coming out of the woodwork and talking about how it's affected their lives, sometimes in really surprising ways. You may even be starting to wonder, as you flick from one app to the next, that maybe you yourself have ADHD. I know I certainly did. So, that is what I've chosen to focus on today. ADHD. What is it? What is it like to have it? And how is it diagnosed and treated? Of course, any talk about ADHD is going to involve a lot of discussion about the brain, which is a really complex topic. Understatement of the year. Now, I'm no expert on brains. I by no means wrote the book on them. But I do know two people who did. Dr. Allison Caldwell has a PhD in neuroscience, and Micah Caldwell has a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Together, they run the YouTube channel Neurotransmissions, and a while ago, they sent me a copy of their book called Brains Explained. This isn't an endorsement, by the way. That's what my Amazon review is for. But if anyone was going to explain the brain to me, well, I figured it'd be them. So, let's start off with a simple question from Micah. What is ADHD? It's a complicated question to start off with, but um, I'll try my best. <laughs> ADHD can come in a few different flavors. Typically, when we think of ADHD, we think of someone who's hyperactive, right? Someone who's just all over the place. But ADHD is a disorder, a diagnosis that describes someone who struggles with executive functioning and with attention typically to the degree that it causes pretty significant disruption to daily life. That last bit is important, the significant disruption to daily life. To someone without ADHD, these symptoms don't sound unusual. I mean, who doesn't have trouble focusing from time to time? What kid doesn't have too much energy? Am I right, Allie? You know, I know that a big part of the conversation around ADHD is that it's not real, right? That it's like not a real thing and it's just an excuse to like over-medicate little Jimmy so he'll sit still in class. And uh, it's, it's a challenge to push against that because it is a real thing, right? There are real measurable differences in people with ADHD in their brains and in their behavior. So people with ADHD aren't just particularly inattentive and or hyperactive. Their brains are empirically different compared to people without ADHD. So the thing with ADHD and a lot of these kinds of behavioral conditions is that they tend to be super complicated. So it's really hard to like pinpoint. It's not like we can be like, oh yeah, there's this one gene that causes ADHD. Um, we know from genetic studies that look at, you know, sort of the overall genome that people with ADHD tend to have differences in genes involved in dopaminergic signaling as well as in norepinephrine signaling. So these are two major neurotransmitters in the brain. Dopamine is often thought of as like the reward, uh, you know, reward neurotransmitter, but it's actually involved in a lot of different processes. And in particular, it's involved in things like motivation and impulse control and movement control. So you can see how that would relate to ADHD. 
Um, and then norepinephrine is involved in all kinds of things, including attention, focus. So another one that's, you know, you can see how that would be involved. To recap, people with ADHD appear to be low on two important chemicals in their brains, dopamine and norepinephrine. But their brains might not just fire differently, they could also, as the kids say today, just be built different. Particularly, there appears to be differences in the circuitry that connects the front of their brains to other parts of it. The frontal lobe, by the way, is incredibly important. Okay, I mean, what part of the brain isn't, I guess? But the front of your brain handles things like voluntary movement, expressive language, and high-level executive functions, like the ability to plan, organize, and control impulses. So it has to do with, you know, how your executive processing system is handling and, and coping with information. They basically saw these, this decrease in activation, which indicates that there's... Um, a decrease in the circuit that controls movement that helps you control like your your ability to like stop movement so now you can understand the hyperactivity thing a little bit better okay so far so good i think i'm keeping up with a neuroscientist which i'll admit i'm surprised by that but what causes these differences in the brains of people with adhd well, there are some popular views that it's a consequence of sugary diets or too much TV or that the parents are to blame or something like that. Research, though, doesn't back that up, and instead, it looks like ADHD is largely inherited. According to Dr. Thomas Brown, a clinical psychologist who runs an ADHD clinic in Los Angeles, one in four people with ADHD have a parent who also has it, whether that parent knows it or not. A 2016 study found that that might be actually a lot more common. As many as 40% of mothers may have ADHD and 50% of fathers. So, okay, yeah, I guess technically in a roundabout way, you could say the parents are responsible. Dr. Brown also says the other three out of four people likely have another relative, like a sibling, aunt, uncle, or grandparent with it. I was reading that um, at least one study has been done where they knocked out a gene involved in dopaminergic signaling in zebrafish, and it caused hyperactivity behavior in the zebrafish. So they basically gave zebrafish the zebrafish equivalent of ADHD just by knocking out this gene. Okay, so they were hyperactive, but how can a scientist tell if a fish couldn't pay attention? Uh, obviously, they put them in a school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, fish puns aside, that study had me hooked. But of course, like all things brain, it's not so simple. ADHD isn't linked to just one gene that can be flipped like a switch, and it doesn't appear to be solely related to the DNA passed down from your relatives. Researchers are exploring possible environmental factors as well. If your um, birthing parent experiences a measles infection during pregnancy, that can lead to ADHD-like symptoms. Um, there's actually a big study that just came out uh, recently that freaked out a lot of people of reproductive age because it showed that any consumption of caffeine, not even just like one cup of coffee a day, but any consumption of caffeine during pregnancy is linked to r increased risk of ADHD. Now, before you go swearing off coffee, this is one study, and there have been other studies that have found no link between caffeine consumption and ADHD risk. Like Ali mentioned, the exact causes and risk factors associated with disorders like ADHD can be very difficult to point to definitively. What we've talked about so far is our best understanding based on current research. Consider this your regular reminder that science is a process. But now that we've established how we think ADHD works inside the brain, the next step is to look at how it works outside the brain. 
That is to say, how do these neurological differences manifest themselves as symptoms? What makes the symptoms rise to the level where ADHD is considered a disorder? And how might they be related to, or conflated with, symptoms of other disorders? Most people experience many symptoms of ADHD to some degree. One of the most well-known is the inability to stay focused. While most people can ignore distracting stimuli when they've got something that they really have to do, people with ADHD often struggle. Often, but not always. People with ADHD can also have an ability to dial into certain tasks with the intensity of a laser beam. This so-called hyperfocus can be confusing for their parents, their teachers, or their coworkers, who don't understand how they can be totally absorbed by one task and then seemingly absent for many others. Part of the issue with ADHD is, since it affects executive functioning, certain things become very unimportant and, and you lose focus on those. And then certain things become extremely important, right? Because you're interested in them and you get absorbed into them. So, you know, you can have bills to pay and, and those are uninteresting and they fall by the wayside. But then, you know, video games are like super interesting and you get, you know, sucked into it and suddenly five hours passes by and you don't know what happened. Now, of course, Everybody would rather pay attention to things that interest them than things that bore them. Who among us would rather pay bills than play video games? The reason ADHD is a disorder, though, is that inability to focus on important tasks can be so persistent, it disrupts daily life. If you eschew paying your electricity bill for too long in favor of playing video games, well, then eventually you won't be able to play video games either. Oftentimes, the only thing that can keep someone with ADHD on task and doing that uninteresting thing they don't want to do is the knowledge that if they don't do it this second, the near future is going to be very unpleasant. To an observer, that can make it seem like focusing on the other tasks that aren't red alert, all hands on deck levels of urgency. Maybe that's just a matter of discipline or willpower, but it isn't. Because of how it's wired, the ADHD brain's ability to focus isn't under voluntary control. That's one major symptom, but there are many more, and ADHD is split into three subtypes with different associated symptoms. There's the inattentive type that's characterized by that inability to focus, or to finish tasks, or even to start them. It's also associated with forgetfulness, or the tendency to make thoughtless mistakes or misplace important items. There's the hyperactive slash impulsive type, which is associated with an inability to sit still or to stop talking, or a tendency to interrupt others or blurt out the answers to questions before they're completed. And then there's the combined type, the chocolate and vanilla soft serve swirl of the other two. Symptoms of the hyperactive slash impulsive type are pretty easy to spot, but the inattentive type is less obvious. And interestingly, it seems to have a big impact on how we diagnose people depending on their gender. For the longest time, ADHD was specifically focused on the hyperactivity side of things. And as a result of that, uh, most often it was diagnosed and continues, I would say, for the most part to be diagnosed in boys, in young boys, because um, it tends to uh, manifest in these very obvious ways, right? being loud and talking over other people, not being able to stay seated, um, being wild and just like, you know, having all of these symptoms that we associate with hyperactivity uh, versus girls where in general, uh, 
there's still more research that needs to be done, tends to skew more towards the inattentive type. But actually what, what there seems to be some evidence for is that um, societal expectations and pressures often play the biggest role in terms of how it's demonstrated and, and expressed between boys and girls growing up. Like girls get a lot more pressure young at a younger age to be well-behaved and be quiet and sit still, uh, whereas boys will be boys and they kind of can be louder and more active. Exactly. So if, so if you have hyperactive type ADHD as a girl, you might still um, uh, not demonstrate in the same way or in the tip- typical way since it's been normalized often to, to boys um, and go undiagnosed or underdiagnosed, uh, or it's misdiagnosed, frankly, uh, as something else. Yeah, girls so. girls are diagnosed. So when it comes to ADHD diagnosis, it's about two boys for every one girl being diagnosed right now. Um, but there is starting to be some shifting as we recognize more the inattentive subtype and, and what that looks like. ADHD is a developmental disability, meaning symptoms often appear in childhood. But that doesn't mean it goes away when people become adults. Instead, many people with ADHD learn ways to cope with it, and there are several ADHD adults who are thriving. Gymnast Simone Biles and swimmer Michael Phelps are two examples. I was diagnosed with ADHD last year. But despite that, we have 27 Olympic gold medals between the three of us. Justin Timberlake, Will I Am, and Adam Levine have been diagnosed with the condition, and don't get me started on how many Grammys we have. There are people with ADHD who have found success in all walks of life. They learn strategies to cope with it or find jobs that fit with how they operate. And it's not just generational athletes or musical talents like myself. So with with adults versus kids, you know, obviously when we think of ADHD, we think that that's sort of a a childhood um, disorder. And it's true, you know, it starts in childhood versus a lot of other mental health diagnoses where we see that manifest typically after um, puberty or in early 20s is typically where when a lot of mental health issues arise. But ADHD is something that happens from a very young age. And, you know, for a long time, people would say, oh, you can grow out of it. And it's true. Some people do, right? Some people gain the skills and the coping methods to kind of overcome whatever difficulty they're facing in, in those regards. But uh, what we're finding is that a lot of adults uh, continue to have ADHD. And, and frankly, a lot of adults are able to assess themselves later <laughs> in life too and be like, oh yeah, wait, well, that, that was, <laughs> hang on a second. It may help those adults to learn that there are a bevy of other common symptoms not often discussed when people talk about ADHD. Dr. Thomas Brown of the Brown ADHD Clinic describes how his patients usually lack the ability to get organized, either with their stuff or their time. Many have trouble getting to sleep at a reasonable hour. They stay up until they're completely exhausted. But once they are asleep, it's like they're a comatose rock. They might have energy once they're up and about, but then if they have to sit still and focus, their eyelids get heavy and they start to nod off. People with ADHD can have fantastic long-term memories and recall specific events or movie plots or song lyrics with total clarity but then have problems with their short-term memory, to the point that they can't remember things that happened just a few minutes ago. They often struggle with writing because they have difficulty putting their thoughts on the page in a coherent way. And many times, Dr. Brown says his patients have trouble managing their emotions. 
They might get frustrated and irritated easily and have trouble with moodiness. Or they can become fixated on something that they want to do and they feel a push to do it immediately. Consequences be damned. Or they might worry a lot and then be unable to put that worry out of their minds and just fixate on whatever's troubling them. Now, if as I'm describing all of these symptoms, you find yourself saying, hey, that's me, over and over, I have two important things to consider. One is that everybody experiences all of these sometimes. So the important question is, how much do these things interfere with your ability to function day to day? If some or many of these issues pose a real problem, it's also important to know that many different disorders can manifest in similar ways or can also be present alongside ADHD. Part of the issue is uh, you sort of have to figure out which diagnosis is the primary. And because a lot of people with ADHD also, there's a high comorbidity with anxiety too. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, obviously, I mean, that makes sense. If you, if you have ADHD and you're struggling with daily life tasks, that's going to make you anxious, right? It's not like you, you know, you might come across as sort of this spacey person or inattentive or hyperactive or whatever, but that doesn't mean that you're not aware of the difficulties that you face. And so there's a lot of other stuff that can go along with that anxiety, uh, self-esteem issues, you know, it's, it's interesting to see how there are linked pieces. And so finding the core root issue and, and knowing that it's ADHD can be hard sometimes. Children with ADHD sometimes exhibit related conditions like oppositional defiant disorder, where they don't play nice with authority figures, conduct disorder, where they have a tendency to steal, vandalize, or fight others, or learning difficulties like dyslexia. About 15% of children with ADHD also have depression, and up to 30% have anxiety. For adults, those numbers are much closer to 50%. Depending on the diagnosis, the treatments can be very different. So, how do mental health professionals diagnose if a person suffers from ADHD, a related condition, or some combination? Now, it would be great if people with ADHD, or any mental health condition for that matter, could have their brains scanned and the results would illuminate a flashing neon sign that diagnosed the condition like a family feud answer going up on the board or something. But of course, it's never that simple. Yes, research indicates the ADHD brain looks and behaves differently from neurotypical brains, but imaging technology like CT scans, PET scans, or MRIs can't be used to diagnose it, in part because they're not sensitive enough yet to work on a case-by-case -case basis or to differentiate between other possible disorders. So a brain scan is out. But what about some type of test? Is there a written questionnaire somebody seeking a diagnosis could fill out or something like that? There are tests like that, right, where it's sort of the Likert scale, you know, one through five, how much do these things affect you? And you just go through and you you answer according to the best of your ability. Um, but there are also interview questions, right, where you, you actually do open-ended questions rather than, you know, something that has a number attached to it. With kids, typically what will happen is it's, it is very much observational since they can't they don't necessarily have the insight to provide a lot of information. And so um, typically there will be kinds of um, structured activities that you engage in with kids to sort of gauge attentiveness and activity level. Um, so it, it can run the gamut. Now, are any of these tests required for an ADHD diagnosis? 
there are a, a wide malady of tests that can be given, but frankly, you don't even need any tests necessarily to diagnose it, right? It can be diagnosed through observation, interview, that sort of thing. So there is no one, you know, like, you got to pass this one test to, to get ADHD. Yep, it often just comes down to the observations of a trained medical professional, like a psychiatrist, psychologist, or a pediatrician. Which, to be totally clear, I am not any of those things, and neither are most people on the internet. These doctors are aided by guidelines in a manual, though specifically which manual is a question of geography. If they're in the US, they'll use the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition, better known as the DSM-5. Outside the US, doctors will probably reference the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases, or ICD, which is similar to the DSM. The DSM-5 lays out symptoms associated with the three subtypes of ADHD we talked about before, inattentive, hyperactive slash impulsive, and combined. To meet the criteria for a diagnosis, the symptoms have to negatively impact work, school, or social functioning, be persistent for at least six months and in at least two settings, like at school and at home, and they have to appear before age 12. Patients under 17 must have at least six symptoms, and those 17 and up must show at least five. Still, even detailed guidelines applied by medical professionals don't guarantee an accurate diagnosis. I mean, I know of people who basically their doctor was like, it's either anxiety or ADHD, so we're going to try a stimulant medication, and if that makes it worse, it's anxiety. If that makes it better, it's ADHD. <laughs> yeah, which brings us to what is probably the most hot-button topic around ADHD, how it's treated once it's diagnosed. Two common medications are Adderall and Ritalin, which are both stimulants. Adderall is an amphetamine, which may conjure up images of Walter White in an RV out in the desert cooking up blue meth. But to be clear, methamphetamine and amphetamine are related, but they are distinct. I think that this contributes somewhat to why some people don't really want to believe that ADHD is a real condition because of this fear of abusing these stimulant drugs that obviously have real risks if they're used inappropriately. Especially in kids, you know, yeah. there's like, oh no, the children, you know. Yeah. And I think I think it is fair to have conversations about, you know, medicating children at right. too young of an age, you know, just to get them to be chill in a classroom. Um, but yeah, it is, it's a real challenge for people who do experience ADHD, right? Because it can be a total life changer to have access to medication. And I think a lot of it is because, you know, we were talking about earlier that we know, so, so speaking of this from the more neuroscience side, we know that there are these changes in dopaminergic and norepinephrine signaling. And these are signaling pathways that are affected by stimulant drugs. So if you have a lower level overall of signaling in those circuits in your brain, and now you add a stimulant, now you're basically helping your brain compensate for that lower level of signaling. So these stimulants can get inattentive and hyperactive people to a baseline that most other people are at, which explains the paradox of how a stimulant can have a calming effect. But what if somebody's already got plenty of dopamine or norepinephrine in their thinky meats already? If you're a neurotypical person and you are taking these stimulants, you're boosting it above and beyond that normal level. And that's, you know, part of why these drugs are abused as study drugs, because it essentially allows you to create that hyperfocus that, uh, you know, normal people don't have and ADHD people definitely don't have when it comes to doing some of these less exciting daily tasks. 
Studies show that for about 80% of people with ADHD, stimulants can effectively treat their symptoms. But even though Adderall isn't cooked up by Heisenberg in a lab under Los Poyos Hermanos, Adderall and Ritalin can still come with a high potential for misuse, and can be addictive if not taken as prescribed. I guess now would be a good time to also mention that about 15% of adults with ADHD also have difficulties with substance abuse. So, for people who don't react to stimulants, or who have coexisting conditions like anxiety or substance abuse that might rule out stimulants as a treatment option, there are other possible medications. The antidepressant Wellbutrin, for example, can treat ADHD by preventing brain cells from reabsorbing dopamine and norepinephrine instead of making them emit more. So those dopamine and norepinephrine chemicals hang out hitting the focus button on neighboring neurons for longer. There are also non-pharmaceutical options like cognitive behavioral therapy that can help people with ADHD adjust their behavior and develop skills to keep their symptoms manageable. All right, I've spent a very long time talking about ADHD, but one statistic I haven't mentioned is just how many people have it. According to the CDC, a little under 10% of children have been diagnosed with ADHD. Though that number is probably a bit low because girls are likely underdiagnosed. For adults, fewer than 5% have ADHD, so it's not super common, but it's not incredibly rare either. That's not the impression one might get from social media sites like Twitter or TikTok. Lately, it seems like the conversation about ADHD has exploded and tons of people on the platforms are talking about what it's like to have it. There could be a few reasons for this. I saw this tweet the other day that was making a joke about, you know, somebody said that there's so many people with ADHD on Twitter, and it's like, hmm, I wonder why so many people with ADHD love the dopamine slot machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an endless feed of algorithmically curated content can be a strong draw for anyone, even if you don't have a dopamine-starved brain. But it's also important to consider the time that we're in right now. Stress can highly exacerbate ADHD, and... During COVID, many adults who had undiagnosed ADHD may be finding that their coping strategies are starting to break down. And then there's our collective attitude towards issues surrounding mental health. The conversation among younger people is becoming more open and less stigmatized, leading many of them to seek care, which could cause a peculiar phenomenon. <laughs> this has been a big topic for us actually recently. Um, so I, I work as a therapist, right? And I work with college students um, primarily. And it has become harder to uh, know, in part because of the pandemic, right? Because, uh, because it's such a change in our normal life that some of the difficulties that people are facing can, can look like ADHD um, symptoms. But also, strangely, um, ADHD has become a sort of like trendy topic on TikTok mm -hmm. and sort of the narrative that's given is you have ADHD, you just don't know it, right? And, and as such, it pushes a lot of people to um, self-diagnose and then to misdiagnose their anxiety or their depression as ADHD. Um, and then they go to their doctor or whoever and say, I have ADHD because here's what I have and they've sort of been given this script by, by someone else. Still, an open conversation around mental health can be a net positive for many people. It was for me. Last year, I was diagnosed with ADHD, 
and I only sought professional help because so many people shared experiences that I realized were remarkably similar to my own. If you're like me and you think you could benefit from professional help, just remember the brain, as a topic, and I guess as an organ, is kind of squishy. You may notice that your story is a lot like one you saw on social media, but like we've said over and over, ADHD symptoms can have a lot of overlap with depression, anxiety, or other disorders. Do your best to give your doctor honest insights about your own experiences, and remember that most people on TikTok or Twitter or YouTube do not have PhDs in neuroscience or are licensed to professionally counsel others on their mental health, including me. So, with that said, if you're still interested in seeking a diagnosis because you may think you have ADHD, I'll let Dr. Allie Caldwell have the last word. But I think it's also good to think about why are you why are you looking into this, you know, and what are you hoping to better understand about yourself? Because ultimately, like we said, whether it's a pathological condition or just a difference in the brain, you know, it's just about figuring out how you can interact with the world in the way that works best for you and that, you know, helps you feel productive and happy and fulfilled. Once again, a huge thank you to our guests, Allison Caldwell and Micah Caldwell. I'd love to have them both back on again soon, but if you can't wait that long, be sure to visit their Neurotransmissions YouTube channel or check out their book, Brains Explained, How They Work and Why They Work That Way. If you like this topic, let us know over on Twitter at Seeker, and we may just poke around the brain some more. And as always, don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time on Seeker Plus.